You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We just have two more sermons in this letter to the Hebrews. And this morning, I'm going to divide it up a little bit differently. We are going to consider together Hebrews 13 verses 7 and 9, as well as verses 17 through 19, since they thematically go together. Next week, I will take the rest of the chapter and we will finish the book. But before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us call upon our God and ask for his help as we come before his word. Father, we confess that we often come into corporate worship feeling not only physically, but perhaps spiritually sleepy. And so we ask that you, by your word and by your Holy Spirit, would wake us up. That you would once again direct our minds and hearts to Jesus Christ. And even as we consider a, a challenging subject of how we are to respond to spiritual leaders that you have given us, we, we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment and help us to believe and obey your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now jumping down to verse 17, we read, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. Authority and submission have almost become dirty words in the English language. As Americans, I think we are especially suspicious of all authority structures. We view them as wombs gestating tyranny. And yet, God created every sphere of life with structures of authority and submission. Marriage and the family, school and work, 
the state and the church. And so we must understand that authority and submission are not consequences of the fall. They are goods of creation. Certainly sin has corrupted them, but sin did not create them. God did. Good leaders, therefore, are intended by God as a gift to his people, not as a grief. And this is true in the context of the state. Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And Paul speaks of such leaders saying, he is God's servant for your good. It's maybe not how we think of our government leaders. But this is also true in the context of the church. For God promised Israel in the Old Testament that if they would return to him in repentance, one of their rewards would be this. God says, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And Paul speaks directly to the New Testament church in Ephesus. And he says that God gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. It says God gave these leaders to the church. Godly leadership is meant to be God's gift. You shouldn't be surprised, therefore, that as... The author of Hebrews here in chapter 13 is instructing these Christians how to function as a church, how to offer acceptable worship as a church, that he has something to say about how Christians ought to respond to their God-given leaders. The pleasing sacrifices of acceptable worship to God, which we've been learning about in this chapter, include good responses to godly leadership. We find four of these good responses in the verses I just read to you. But I want to be clear at the outset that this is not a sermon on what are good, appropriate responses to bad leaders. That, that's important. It's just not what this text is talking about. I'm fully aware that bad leaders exist in the world and in the church. I'm fully aware that abuse is real. But we need to understand that the Bible's answer to abuse of authority, to the perversion of authority, is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Bad leadership is not an excuse to just reject all leadership. The commands in Hebrews 13 are not negotiable commands. In other words, you're not fully offering acceptable worship to God if you do not have any spiritual authority in your life. Let me also be clear at the outset that the Bible has stricter commands for leaders than it does for those who are submitting to those leaders. 
preached on those commands many times, especially when we walked through Paul's letter to Timothy. Leaders are held to a higher standard, and it, as our text even says, they will be judged accordingly. I believe that the abuse of authority will be judged more harshly and severely on the last day than rebellion against authority. So even as I preach on good responses to godly leadership, I am going to try to present to you some of the elements of godly leadership that God requires. And let me finally clarify at the outset that the kind of leadership that we're talking about here this morning is leadership within the church, especially the leadership that is exercised by pastors and all elders, because the author clarifies that he is referring to the leaders who spoke the word of God to these Christians, who exercise spiritual oversight, as you see in verse 17. And in the church, we know that this refers to elders, especially those who are called to preach and teach, what we commonly call pastors. So yes, I fully recognize the awkwardness of standing before you and preaching, here's how you guys are supposed to respond to me. Pastor Ryan, if you feel awkward, I feel more awkward. But I want you to recognize that I'm not here to tell you how I think you should respond to me. I'm here to tell you how God commands you to respond to your godly leaders. And at the same time, I will be telling you what God requires of us as leaders. So this sermon is intended to cut both ways. So here are four good responses to godly leadership. Number one, you are to imitate their life of faith. You see this in verse seven. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So responding to leaders bookends this entire section from verse 7 through verse 19. Most commentators agree that in verses 7 through 9, the author is talking about past leaders who have probably died by the point that Hebrews is written. And then in verse Verses 17 through 19, the author is talking about how they respond to their current leaders. So more than likely, the leaders mentioned in verse 7 are already dead. This is suggested not only by the past tense of those who spoke to you the word of God, but also by the fact that they are to consider the outcome of their way of life. And you don't know the outcome of one's life until that life has come to its completion. Just like you don't know the outcome of a race until that race is finished. So these are the leaders who more than likely first brought the gospel to these Hebrew Christians. These Hebrews were converted under their preaching. The church was established under their leadership. And the author is encouraging them as he's written all of these many exhortations to, to these Christians. Do you remember your first leaders? 
and how they lived, how they endured to the end. I want you to think about them. Think about where they are now with the Lord. And I want you to imitate the faith that you saw when you, when they were with you. However, elsewhere in scripture, it's clear that you don't just wait for your leaders to die to start imitating them. Paul commanded the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And he commanded that young pastor Timothy to set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And he tells Timothy, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Godly leadership is to be visible leadership so that others can see it and imitate it. Because faith and faithfulness are inseparable. If you believe the true gospel, you're going to obey the gospel. And you can't obey the gospel if you don't believe the gospel. So godly leaders must not only preach godliness, they must exemplify godliness. It does not matter how gifted a preacher is if his life does not exemplify godliness, you do not sit under his preaching. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Grace matters more than gifts. A pastor who has many gifts but little grace is a great danger to the church. But a pastor abounding in God's grace will be a mighty weapon in the Lord's hands even if his gifts are more measured. Pastors need certain gifts. They need grace a whole lot more. You, therefore, ought to respond to your godly leaders in a way that prioritizes their pursuit of grace more than their passions for gifts and recognition. Because God calls you to imitate the faith of those leaders. You need to see the gospel in your pastors just as much as you need to hear the gospel from them. But here are three brief but important clarifications on this point. First, want to be clear, you need to see the grace of godliness. You don't need to see the perfection of sinlessness. The chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, is the only perfect shepherd there is. All of his under-shepherds, even the best of them, are first sinful sheep who need the same grace and depend upon the same righteousness of Christ that the rest of the fold needs and depends upon. Godly leaders, therefore, do not lead by exemplifying Christ-like perfection, but by exemplifying dependence upon Christ. That's why I'm very thankful for Paul's command to Timothy, where he says, Timothy, everybody needs to see your progress, not your perfection. They all need to see you, Timothy, and say, bless his heart. He tries really hard, and I, I think he's slowly getting better. That's how I think Midwesterners at least would approach Timothy. Bless his heart. He's not good, but he's getting better. 
that is one clarification. You do not want a pastor who says, look at me and be saved. You want a pastor who says, look where I am looking and see your salvation. The second clarification is that you are to imitate their faith. If they are being unfaithful, you do not imitate them. Doesn't mean you need to imitate all of their preferences. You imitate where you see them living out their faith. So it is a qualified imitation. And the third clarification by implication is that you must have local leaders whose lives and faithfulness you can actually see. I am thankful for the, the wealth of resources we have today. We can hear and listen to online so many good preachers. We can read so many good books, but we cannot have virtual pastors because we can't see their faith. You can hear them preach the gospel, but you can't see them living the gospel. You can hear them teaching the faith. You cannot see their faith. You cannot see how they are relating to their wife and to their children. You cannot see how they are responding to criticism and correction. It's told you don't really know somebody's character until you've seen somebody disagree with them. And I think that's true. You cannot see how they comfort repentant sinners, how they warn the wandering. And how can you imitate what you can't see? The first good response to godly leadership is to imitate the faith of those leaders. The second good response is to receive their preaching of the faith. There is nothing more important for a pastor than the, his own embrace of the gospel. His personal communion with God is the most important aspect of his life and ministry, which is true for all of us. This is why Robert Murray McShane said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. But after that, and I would argue flowing out of that, the most important task of the pastor is preaching. You see this. First, in the description of the leaders as those who spoke to you the word of God. That's how the author sums up their ministry. It's not all preaching, but it is all ministry of the word. For God's word is the only authority in ministry. And any authority that forsakes God's word has forsaken the only ground of that authority. And think of this phrase in light of what we've read before in Hebrews. The letter began with the declaration that in the past and in these last days, God has spoken. He spoke by the prophets. He now has spoken by his son. In chapter 2, the author was clear. The gospel was first declared by the Lord. The Son is the message. The Son is the chief messenger. But then in chapter 4, the author has told us that God's Word is still living and active. It's not old and dead. 
In other words, God is still speaking by his son and about his son. You may ask, well, how is he doing that? Through the preaching of the gospel. As the leaders of the Hebrews spoke the word of God, God was the one who was continuing to speak to those Hebrews. In other words, Christian preaching is not merely the preacher preaching the gospel of Christ. It is Christ preaching the gospel through the preacher. Now, for some of you, that might make you feel uncomfortable and say, you know, I, I knew Pastor Neil deals with pride, but that is about as proud as it gets. If he thinks Christ is the one up there preaching, does he think he's Jesus? I'm not that proud yet by God's grace. But if it makes you uncomfortable for that conception of preaching, I would argue it's not that I am overestimating the preeminence of the preacher. The problem is that you are underestimating the power of preaching. Do you remember what Paul told the Thessalonians? He said, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, so he says, when, when you received the word that you heard from our preaching, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It's not the preacher, but the word preached that is powerful and at work. That's why I get very frustrated when so many churches today try to get gimmicky and they think there's other ways we can draw in people to hear the gospel. Saw a clip a couple of weeks ago, really big, really popular church. The pastors come out on what can only be called a giant stage dressed up as Toy Story characters. That is blasphemy. It's not funny. And if you go into a church, they're dressed up like Toy Story characters. Just walk out. They're dressed up as Star Wars characters. That's a little bit better. You might be able to wait and hear. It's not the preacher. It's the word preached. And anything that is distracting from the word preached is going to kill your soul. Do you think I'm exaggerating? Then look at verse 8. The author says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now that statement is connecting the command in verse 7 to imitate the faith of those leaders with the command that's coming in verse 9, which is don't be led astray by any diverse and strange teachings. Now, why does he just insert this statement about the immutability, the unchangeableness of, of Jesus? It's because the faith that you are to imitate is only faith in Jesus. And the gospel and teaching that you are to receive is 
all about the person and work of Jesus. So this statement is not a just random Christological statement. It is a way of saying, you need to be clear, the gospel that you have heard and that you have seen, it never changes because Jesus never changes. Christian doctrine cannot and must not change with time and trends. Truth does not change. So faith in Christ yesterday is what faith in Christ today looks like. And it's what faith in Christ every day will look like. What you are to believe about Jesus never changes. How you are to obey Jesus never changes. Faith and faithfulness remain the same yesterday, today, and forever because Jesus remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is why you can imitate past faith, and this is why you know that any deviation from historic, faithful Christian doctrine is false. For Jesus is God's final and full self-revelation. Jesus is the truth of God. And so when the apostles went out preaching, they were not preaching anything other than what they had been taught by Christ and his spirit. And this is why Christian preaching must always preach the Bible, which is the complete word of God in Christ. No preaching is allowed to add from to it. No preaching is allowed to subtract from it. God's word is living and active, but it is not changing because Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, and the gospel is Jesus. Now, two brief exhortations from this. The first is, as you are make de making decisions about your life and your time, Sitting under faithful preaching has to be one of the highest priorities of your life. It's not something you do if you have time. It is something you make time for and make sure it is a regular diet in your life. Notice what the author says in verse 9. It says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, clearly part of the teaching that the Hebrew Christians were, were running after and which was tempting them towards apostasy had to do with Old Testament Jewish food laws. But the author contrasts this teaching about foods with teaching the gospel, which he describes as grace. So you notice there that he is essentially saying preaching, teaching is a conduit of grace because what is happening is your soul is being fed with Jesus Christ. To sit under preaching is to feast upon Jesus. It is to taste and see that he is good. And this is why it must be a priority in your life. There are many bad reasons to leave a church. There are some good ones to leave a church. And one of those good reasons is if the preacher is not faithfully preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and helping you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. 
If he is not opening God's word to you, then let the door close behind him. Do not care how eloquent or entertaining a preacher is. Care how much he loves and preaches Christ. Care that he knows God's word and can help you understand it, believe it, love it, and obey it. So I ask you, is a regular, healthy diet of preaching a priority for you? Now, if you attended every worship service that Good Shepherd has in a normal month, you would hear seven sermons. We have a prayer service once a month, which we'll have tonight. Please come back. But there are seven sermons on Sunday morning and evening. If a, if a week is 30 to 31 days, seven sermons is not a lot. And that's if you were actually there for every single one. I long for the day. I, I probably won't live to see it, but I long for the day when I hear Christians asking, why do churches only have two services on a Sunday? Not, why on earth would they have two? Two services on a Sunday. Don't they know when football starts? If you prize Christ, you will prize the preaching of Christ. If you love grace, you will love the preaching that feeds your soul with grace. The second exhortation is to be committed then to knowing the true gospel. You cannot obey this command not to go after diverse and strange teachings if you don't know the gospel. You will be easily led astray if you're not familiar with the genuine article. There are those who are tasked. I've used this analogy before, but I think it's helpful, so I'm using it again. There are those who are tasked with identifying counterfeit money. That They're the ones called it. We need to be able to know what's genuine, what's counterfeit. But they don't learn how to do this by studying all of the different variations that are out there. There's a lot of counterfeit money. They prepare by studying the real things so intently that they can spot a deviation in an instant. In the same way, we need to know our Bibles. We need to be able to smell the stink of error instantly and see a forgery at a glance. Because again, the authority of preaching doesn't come from the preacher. It comes from the word preached. Please hear me. I'm not trying to make myself really important in your life. I'm trying to make the gospel really important in your life. And that gospel doesn't change. So you need to make sure you, you know your Bibles. You're making sure that Pastor Ryan and I are up here preaching the truth. This is part of what we do at every single elders meeting we have. There's an opportunity for the ruling elders to critique, evaluate, correct anything Pastor Ryan and I are up here saying. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean you need to agree with every interpretation of every passage that I have. And it doesn't mean if you find a point of disagreement with a preacher on certain points, you automatically need to leave and find another church. 
But if the pastor is regularly mishandling the word or has lost the heart of the gospel, you just can't sit under that kind of preaching. The third good response to godly leadership is to submit to their faithful care. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. I don't think this is anybody's favorite verse in the Bible. I've never seen anyone make little artistic depictions, hang it, frame it in their, their room. Oh, wait, wait, where do you go when you're just feeling really down? I go to Hebrews 13, 17, obey and submit your leaders. Just picks me up every day. But here the author is clearly speaking of past, it is not speaking of past leaders who finished the race, but of their current leaders. And it does appear as if there was some division in this church between the leadership and the congregation. We've talked about many reasons that this church was in danger of apostasy. Some were getting spiritually lazy. Some were afraid of persecution. But it also seems clear that some were listening to outside voices that were leading them astray. And they were now coming back and critiquing and correcting everything that their pastors had been preaching to them for years. Saying, you know. I, I found this TV evangelist. I listened to really good podcasts. I read a book one day, and now I know everything there is to know. There is such a thing as bad shepherds. Sometimes churches go astray because their pastors have forsaken the gospel, and they are preaching lies. Sometimes the sheep just begin wandering. Now, please... Again, hear me. I am not saying you can't listen to other preachers. Please listen to other preachers. Please read good books. But we must be careful about who we are listening to and what we are reading. We must be innocent and as doves and shrewd as serpents. And you must remember that while God has blessed us with many excellent resources, he has also given us shepherds especially tasked with caring for our souls. And that's the reason the author gives for submission and obedience here. He says, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. An account to whom? To the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, who rules his church. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, I, I honestly haven't framed this verse in my office either, but it is one of the verses I come back to quite regularly when I think and pray about my responsibility as a pastor. Pastors and elders are entrusted with the care of God's beloved sheep, his chosen sheep, his precious possessions. And God will hold people accountable for how they care for what he loves and treasures. So parents, just think, if, if you let somebody watch your kids, even for a couple of hours, you want them to take that with the utmost seriousness. 
admittedly, there are days you are so desperate you will let anyone watch your children if they will just give you a few moments alone. But most of the time when you are not sleep deprived and in your right mind, you want to make sure those people are going to take good care of your beloved children. How much more is this true for God the Father? How much more is this true with the chief shepherd of his sheep? And how much does that chief shepherd love his sheep? Well, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me. And I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. That's how much Jesus loves you. That's Jesus' heart for you. And so what does he do because he loves you? Well, one of the things he does is give you shepherds to whom he has also given his heart for you. Because God loved Israel, he gave them King David, who he described as a man after his own heart, who would love Israel like God loves Israel. And remember what it says in Jeremiah, that if the sheep would return to God, he will give them shepherds after his own heart. So godly shepherds are shepherds that God has first given his heart and only then has given his people. These are the types of leaders that God is asking you to obey and submit to. Now, again, it doesn't mean you always have to agree with them. They are not infallible in doctrine or in deed. The more you get to know your pastors, your elders, well, the more you get to know Pastor Ryan and your other elders, you're just going to be, these guys are so great. The more you get to know me, you're going to realize this guy's a sinner. A big time sinner. You don't have to always agree. But God's word is the highest authority. So I don't claim perfect theology. I don't claim to make perfect decisions, which is one of the reasons I'm Presbyterian. And I believe wisdom is found in a plurality of elders. You are more easily going to find wisdom with a lot of godly men with, than just one man. Who, who knows where he might go if he's left to himself. This doesn't mean you can't ask questions. It doesn't mean you can't offer critiques. But it does mean that you are to trust your leaders, you are to respect them, and you're to give them the benefit of the doubt and follow them as they seek to follow Christ. As much as it depends on you, let them lead you with joy, because that will be for your good. If your shepherds are doing their job, they are going to work to encourage you, to comfort you, to support you, and strengthen you. But sometimes that loving care will require correction and conviction. We often want comfort. We don't want conviction. 
And yet the gospel teaches us that gospel comfort comes through gospel conviction. So sometimes your leaders will need to say things that are hard to hear from the pulpit and in private. But this is in order to care for you, not crush you. I look back at the many times my parents and my pastors had to correct me. I never liked it at the time. I always thought I was right and they were wrong. Poor Pastor Kevin had the trial of pastoring teenage Neil. That was the height of my arrogance and sense of self-importance. I thought I was smarter than everybody else. Leandro probably says he still thinks he's smarter than everybody else. But by God's grace, I at least can recognize it's not true. But not college neither. And so my parents and my pastors had to humble me and correct me and point out my errors. Now, teenagers, I especially want to say to you, your parents, your teachers, your pastors are not out to ruin your life. They love you. They are trying to care for you as best they can by God's grace. You think you're always right. You're not. When I look back now, I can see that more often than not, my parents, my pastors, my teachers, they were right and I was wrong. But what I love most about them is that they loved me enough to challenge me. I cannot think of a day that ever went by growing up where my parents did not tell me about Jesus and point me to Jesus. I grumbled every time my dad made us sit around the table and read the Bible and pray, and I thank God that he did. I think of all the times that my mom, teenage boys can be cruel to their mothers, I am so thankful for the patient endurance of my mother who would not let me go even when I wanted to. And I thank God for my pastors. We must receive and submit to the faithful care of our leaders because when we do, I promise you, you will find more of Jesus. Fourth and finally, this is much quicker. And probably the most important, pray for their faithfulness. Pray for us, he says, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. He says, pray for us. Now, it may seem strange that he asks for prayer than saying, because I have a clear conscience and I am acting honorably. But I think what he's essentially saying is pray for us, because even though we believe we're, we're doing what is right and we are leading you faithfully, we know that that is only going to continue if you keep asking God to give us his grace. The author knows that godly and gracious leadership is leadership that depends upon God and his grace. It is humble, dependent leadership. 
And godly leadership is the fruit of the faithful prayers of God's people for their faithfulness. The godly leader knows that if God withdraws his spirit and grace, he is in big trouble. You remember David in Psalm 51 when he knows he is messed up big time and he starts begging the Lord, Lord, don't take your spirit from me. And because of this, godly leadership knows that it depends upon the prayers of God's people. When you stop praying, we are in trouble. So pray for our preaching. I know many of you do. I long to be a better preacher. I know I have many inadequacies. But pray that we will correctly understand, open, and apply God's word to you and to ourselves. Pray for our marriages and our families, that we would love and lead our families well and faithfully, that the devil would not be able to disrupt the home. Pray against any and all sin and temptation. I think everybody, especially pastors, are in really big danger when they think of any kind of sin and say, well, I would never do that. I don't know what I would be capable of apart from God's grace. So please pray that I would not give in to sin and temptation. Pray against pride, self-pity, anger, and impatience. Pray for our holiness and happiness in Christ. Pray for our faithfulness to the Lord and to you. Pray for joy and endurance in ministry. Pray for wisdom and discipline. But above all else, pray for our communion with and love for Christ. Because godly leadership is Christ-centered leadership. And you are only to imitate leaders as they imitate Christ. And you are to only receive their preaching as they preach Christ. And you are only to submit to them as they submit to Christ. And only those who are regularly communing with Christ will know Christ, love Christ, believe Christ, preach Christ, submit to Christ, live for Christ, and live like Christ. So I beg you to pray for me, for Pastor Ryan, for your elders, for your deacons. Pray for your Sunday school teachers who will be starting up next week. Pray for the young adult leaders. Pray for the campus outreach staff as they are going on campus to proclaim the word of God. Pray for fellowship group and Bible study leaders. Pray, pray, pray. And may God always gift this church with godly, Christ-like leaders who will look and point to Christ in all things. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we cannot do anything apart from Christ and his spirit. Godliness is the fruit of grace. So I pray that good shepherd from top to bottom will abound in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would meditate on the gospel. That we would speak the gospel. That we would live out the gospel. Father, we will never be the most entertaining church. Never be the biggest church. 
I pray that we would simply be a faithful church. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.